The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Good evening. This is your first time here. I want to warmly welcome you. My name is Jaquan Parker. I'm the student director here at Capital Community Church, most specifically the college director. I don't want to get mixed up with Michael. But this evening, we're going to be talking about a very, very, very important topic. Although it's a controversial topic, it is important. We're going to be talking about the doctrine of particular redemption. And if you've been with us as we've been studying this topic, um, I'm coming in right in the middle of what we would call um, the five essential truths of the Reformation, or what we would call the tulip or Calvinism. And if you're not familiar with them, they are total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And right in the middle of that tulip is the doctrine of limited atonement. But as you see um, in the bulletin, it says particular redemption. So before we even start the study, I want to make sure that we, we set the stage because limited atonement is what it is called technically, but we refer to it as particular redemption because when you think about limited atonement, it, it, it tends to give the connotation that the atonement has some kind of limitation. It doesn't have any power, and we certainly don't want to do that uh, when we're referring to the atonement. So the, the terminology that we use, instead of using limited atonement, we use the terminology particular redemption. So it's technically limited atonement, but we use the terminology particular redemption. Now, as we go through this lesson, I'm going to be going through a bunch of Scripture. You're going to be playing Bible drill today. I'm sorry, but if, if it's true, if it's biblical, we want to search the Scriptures. And it's some terms that we want to define before we actually begin our study of the doctrine of particular redemption. Number one, we want to define what particular redemption is. Particular redemption is the doctrine of Scripture that teaches that Jesus Christ died for a particular group of people. His atonement was, was particular. He had a certain aim when he went to the cross. He wasn't dying for some random, undisclosed amount of people. He had a direct intent when he went to the cross. So in summary, the doctrine of particular redemption simply means Christ's blood was not shed in vain. Every single person that he intended to save on that cross will be saved. And I just want to give you a summary statement. But as we try to understand this doctrine and unpack this doctrine, there are really two questions that the doctrine of particular redemption seeks to answer. And that first question is intent. Intent refers to what something is designed to do, or more particularly, what the atonement is designed to do. And the second question is extent. 
And, and, and we can't really say who Christ died for if we don't understand what the point of the cross was, what was the goal uh, of the cross. So those two terms, intent and extent, are, are, are very important. And I want to go to the whiteboard for a second, and I want us to really um, dive in on those two terms. You have intent. And that, can y'all read that chicken scratch? Intent. Design. Intent tells us, what, what is God designing the cross for? I want to give you an illustration. You all are familiar with that movie Titanic. Nice, majestic ship. Beautiful ship. State-of-the-art technology. Well, we all know the Titanic sank, right? And, and, and when they talked to the architect of the ship, and they asked him, um, do, do we have enough lifeboats? He panicked. He was like, no, we don't have enough. He knew people were going to die on that ship. Well, the reason why everybody didn't live when that ship sank was because the architect that made that ship, he did not design that ship with the intention to save everybody if it sank. So it was, what, 22, I say 2,200 souls on board. All of the souls didn't make it. Only a certain number of people survived um, that, that shipwreck because it was a limited amount of lifeboats, and it was a limited amount of lifeboats because of the intent of the designer. Now, on an infinitely greater scale, obviously that example has some, it can break down, but you get what I'm saying. It had a particular design, therefore it had a particular effect, therefore particular people were saved because of the intent. It's the same thing with the cross. God designed the cross to save a particular number of people. It cannot be added to, it cannot be subtracted from. Christ went to that cross because of the intent of the Father, the divine intent of the Father. So intent tells us design. And then you get to the next thing, which is extent. That's going to tell us the scope. That's going to tell us who was the cross supposed to affect? If, if, if you tell me why God designed the cross, I can tell you who will benefit from the cross. And if I can tell you who to be, who, who's going to benefit from the cross, I can tell you um, how many people are going to be saved or who's going who's to be saved or who God intended to save on the cross. So always remember that. Our understanding of the extent of the atonement must correspond with God's intent for the atonement. Well, I hope that was helpful. Now, the next question we want to ask, what in the world is atonement? I'm throwing around these terms, atonement, redemption. What is atonement? Well, a simple definition of the atonement is actually implied in the construct of the word, at one meant. And, and the idea of that word atonement is really unity. Unity, or you can use the term reconciliation, because what the term atonement assumes is that there are two parties. Those parties are separated, and there needs to be a reconciliation. They need to be brought together. So the idea of atonement is two parties that need to be brought together. And this word implies that they are estranged and need to be united. Well, when we apply that idea to the Bible, the word atonement describes how God deals with sin to reconcile sinners to himself. And the biblical usage of atonement assumes that there are two estranged parties, namely God and sinful humanity. 
Well, how are they going to come together? Atonement tells us how they come together. So understand atonement as bringing together two parties. And, and the reason why the fellowship is broken is because of sin. And atonement in the Bible is how God both maintains a relationship with sinners and how he restores a relationship with sinners. And the next thing you need to know about atonement is that it's three things that really are required to establish a biblical understanding of the atonement. I'm going to go back to the whiteboard. All right, let's see. The first one is you have to have a mediator. Then the second is you have to have a covenant. And the third is you have to have a sacrifice. Because if we think about this idea of two offended parties, how are they going to be brought together? God is offended with sinners. He, he, he's at enmity with sinners. So, so who's going to, how, how's this at one meant or atonement going to be made? And the mediator would be the priest. And the covenant, if we're thinking about Scripture, we're thinking about the old covenant and the new covenant, but we're going to focus on the old covenant since the Old Testament came first. We're going to, we're going to talk about the Mosaic covenant. And then you have the sacrifices, and under that, we're going to talk about the sacrificial system or the, or the Levitical priesthood. So remember that. When you're thinking about this idea of atonement, these three things are necessary. You have to have a mediator, you have to have a covenant, and you have to have a sacrifice. Now we're getting to the Bible. Okay, in the Old Testament, particularly, we're going to focus on the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel is, is where God started to establish his covenant. That covenant that he made with Abraham, now it begins to materialize with the nation of Israel. And in the nation of Israel, God maintained his, his relationship with those covenant people via what's called a provisional atonement. Provisional atonement just means something that's temporarily in place until Christ comes. So think about that atonement in the Old Testament as provisional. And that atonement always had a particular aim. For number one, we see particular redemption in the Passover. In Exodus 12, 13, that blood only calls God to pass over a particular group of people. God was not interested in passing over the Egyptians. He wasn't thinking about other nations. That blood was effectual only with those children of Israel. When he saw that blood, he passed over them. So that's, an, that's a type of particular redemption. And we also see particular redemption in the ratification of the Mosaic Covenant. You can turn with me to Exodus 24, looking at verse 3. Exodus 24, verse 3. 
So we see in Exodus 24, God is confirming his covenant. And in verse 3, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, notice, according to the 12 tribes of Israel, verse 5, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings and oxen to the Lord. And Moses, notice what he's doing with the blood. He took half of the blood and put it on the basins, and the other half of the blood he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Look at verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So you see that blood there is connected to covenant. That blood or that sacrificial animal, the benefits that, that, that it was designed to um, give to the people, it only affected the nation of Israel. Moses didn't throw blood on the Canaanites. Moses didn't throw blood on the Egyptians. Moses didn't throw blood on the Jebusites. He threw blood only on the people of Israel. God only intended for, for his people to benefit from that blood sacrifice. It inaugurated a covenant. And then if we look in the law, we see particular redemption in its restrictions placed on the atonement, even within the law of Israel. If you look at Numbers 35, particularly verses 30 to 35, you will see that even there, there's restrictions placed on the atonement. And it reads, if anyone kills a person the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of, a, of the witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not accept no ransom for the life of the murderer who is guilty of death. He shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to this city of refuge that he may, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high, of the high priest. So you see there... No atonement can be offered for somebody who's guilty of murder. If, if it's proven that you killed with malicious intent and you intended to kill that person, they're not making any atonements for you. There's a restriction placed on that atonement. So you see it based on it only benefiting Israel, but you even see within Israel, the atonement was not just, oh, just anybody. It was always particular standards for that atonement. That death of that animal or that sacrificial system was only, only to affect a particular people. And then you even see it in, in Numbers chapter 21, verse eight. well, not Numbers, but Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 8. Accept atonement, O Lord, for who? For people Israel, whom you have redeemed. Do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people so that their blood guilt will be atoned for. Atonement here is only going to benefit the nation of Israel. And more particularly, we talked about the Levitical priesthood. Now we're ready to talk about how that connects to this idea of limited atonement. When we think about the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system, we need to understand this is the primary way that God atoned for sins of his covenant people in the Old Testament. And the crowning event 
of that atonement is recorded in Leviticus 16. It was the Day of Atonement. Everything that the nation of Israel had done wrong, all the offenses that they had um, performed against God, on that Day of Atonement, Aaron or his sons, the high priest, they would go into the holies of holies, and they would make atonement for all the sins of Israel every year. So all the sins that they committed year after year, the high priest on that Day of Atonement they would go in and they would be representing the people of Israel. They wasn't going in there representing the Canaanites. They was not representing the Jebusites. It wasn't just this random, just anybody atonement. That atonement was only designed to benefit the covenant people of God. And we also see in Exodus 30:10, we see that it says, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns, talking about the altar, with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. And then here's where the particular redemption comes in. Look at Leviticus 16, verse 17. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and notice he has made atonement for himself. Well, well he's part of Israel, so that would make sense. For his house, well, if they came from him and he's their father, they're Israelites too. And for all the assembly of Israel, it's only Israel here. Aaron is not trying to make atonement for all, every, everybody in the world. He's only concerned about that elect nation. It was only going to benefit Israel. It was only designed for Israel. And I'll give you another example. We see particular redemption pictured in the high priestly garments. The high priest was not confused as to who he was dying for. For example, the design of the ephod would remind Aaron that he was bearing the sons of Israel on his shoulders as he made atonement for them. And we can look at that in Exodus chapter 28, verses 8 through 11. We don't have to turn there. But in that long passage that's talking about clothing and all of that stuff, he, he, he's representing Israel. Israel was on his shoulders, and then in the, on the breastplate, Israel was on his heart. The name of the 12 tribes was on his garments. He was not to forget not only are you bearing your sin, you're bearing sins of the particular people whom you are a part of. So it wasn't, the, the high priest would not have been confused as to who he was dying for. He, 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 would, he, he would not have thought that, oh, I might be dying for the Egyptians. I could be dying for one of these other nations. He didn't have that in mind. He had one particular people on his mind when he offered that yearly sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. So in summary... We can summarize this idea of atonement in the Old Testament as a particular person, the Levitical priest, offering a particular sacrifice, the blood of animals, in a particular place, the holies of holies, for a particular people, the nation of Israel, based on a particular covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. So it is clear, based on the Old Testament, that redemption was not even, was not even universal in the nation of Israel. So, so when we think about particular redemption in, in, in basis of the Old Testament, it's not unprecedented to come to the New Testament and see that same idea. We already see it in the Old Testament. And Stephen Wellam, he writes, quote, Nowhere in the Old Testament did the priests make atonement for all nations or function as a universal mediator. The covenantal blessings of atonement are only provided for within the covenant community. You see it there. God intended to make atonement for his people. So, and then we move to the New Testament. We move to atonement in the New Testament. You can turn to the book of Hebrews. 
There are many passages in the, in the New Testament that flesh out this idea of particular redemption, but the book of Hebrews really is where we see um, it tells us directly how it relates to Jesus Christ and, and, and how it applies to us. So we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. And we see in Hebrews chapter 2, verses, we can look at verses 9 to 18, we see that Jesus became a human that he might be the effectual mediator for God's elect throughout the whole world. And notice my language. I said God's elect throughout the whole world. I didn't say for the whole world. I said his elect throughout the whole world. Now look at Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. And it says, but we see him talking about Christ, who for a little while was being made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We're going to address verse 9 in a second. For it was fitting that he for whom and by all, thing, all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified have, have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of my brothers in the midst of the congregation, and I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children, he didn't just say children in general, he said the children, that's important, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. I have a question. Is everybody the offspring of Abraham? There you go. All right. So, and then he says, verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Is everybody Jesus' brother? There you go in every respect, so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we see there in the book of Hebrews, he, came, he became a man so that he might be the effectual mediator of God's people. Now I want to go back to verse 9, because some people would argue that verse 9 contradicts this idea of particular redemption. Well, verse 9 says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Well, what do we do with that? That, that clearly disproves this idea of Christ dying for a particular people. But I'll just add this. Anytime we see these terms, we have to ask, what is their relationship to the rest of the verses that precede it? And Tom Schreiner, he says, the, the, the author, talking about the author of Hebrews, he emphasizes that Jesus died for the sake of everyone. The subsequent context with which the writer um, says everyone, it seems that he has in mind everyone without distinction instead of everyone without exception. And his argument for saying that everyone does not mean every single person without distinction, it, it, I'm going to show you the verses. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, many sons will be brought to glory, for it is fitting that he, 
for whom and by all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should be, should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. That's the first verse. And then in verses 11 and 12, he says, his brothers, for he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Everybody is not Jesus' brother. And then he says, the children given to him by God. That should make it even more clear, verse 13. God gave him these children. These are his brothers. And he also calls um, these children the offspring of Abraham. We got two options there. Either God is only saving Jews through Christ's atonement, or the children of Abraham is talking about believers. And we know clearly God is not only saving Jews, because Paul said he's not only the God of Jews, but also the God of Gentiles. So it's clear that the offspring of Abraham, also in conjunction with Galatians chapter 3, that those who are, who are believers are the offspring of Abraham. He became a man, he became that effectual mediator that he might mediate for actual people. He mediated for actual believers, not potential believers, not hypothetical believers, but he mediated for actual people. And every single one of those actual, actual people will be actually saved. Because Christ did not just die in theory, he died an actual death. And salvation does not um, hypothetically come to people, it comes. That's why it says brothers, offspring of Abraham, the children he, God has given him. He became the high priest for them, for his elect. And then we even see with the rest of the book of Hebrews, the rest of the book of Hebrews um, tells us how Jesus effectually mediates for his elect. The first way that he does that is he is the perfect high priest. And we're going to look at that, Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 to 10. And just a passing thought here, we just spoke about Aaron in the Old Testament. What is Jesus' relationship to Aaron? Well, the writer of Hebrews and other places, he's going to argue the problem with Aaron is you got to keep replacing Aaron because Aaron is not Jesus and he's just a human and humans die. That's why he had to have sons. That's why our Levitical priesthood was set apart and it said Aaron and, and, and his sons. So humans die. You have to continue to replace them, uh, um, get other high priests. But when, you, when, you, when we talk about Jesus Christ, the, the, the way that he relates to Aaron is the book of Hebrews says that he is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. The way to simply understand that is to understand that Jesus' priesthood is a transcendent order. This is an order like nobody has ever seen. Jesus is never going to die. Jesus doesn't need to be replaced. Jesus lived a perfect life, and he's not forbidden from doing his job. He'll, ne he'll never stop being the, the, the priest of God's people. He he'll never be disqualified because he's eternal. He doesn't die. So, 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 so when the book of Hebrews says he's the priest after the order of Melchizedek, it's saying that he's greater than Aaron because he is the eternal son of God. He's not forbidden by death or sin from doing the job. So when we say he's the perfect high priest, that is what we mean. And look, look at what it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 5 to 10. It says, So Christ also did not exalt himself. He's contrasting Christ to Aaron. Just like Aaron did not pick, um, choose himself to be the high priest of Israel in the Old Testament, Christ did not just um, selfishly 
um, take this honor upon himself. It says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest. He was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. God the Father chose God the Son to be the high priest. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. Then look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, the son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, complete, Jesus was already perfect, but, but he, he was made complete. He became the eternal source of salvation to all who obey him. Do all people obey Jesus? Therefore, Jesus is not the source of everybody's salvation. He's only the source of salvation for those who listen to him, those who believe in him. Be, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, his priesthood is transcendent. He, he's not even in the line of Israel. He, he, he's not even a Levite. He's something greater than a Levite. He comes after the order of Melchizedek. That's just another way of saying he's the perfect high priest. Nobody needs to come after Jesus because he got the job done. And then he is the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 13. We'll turn there. And it is important to note about Jesus. Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice. And we know that because of verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, and then through the better and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Aaron could not secure eternal redemption because Aaron was not Jesus. That's the simple answer. Why did they have to keep going over and over and over again, offering those sacrifices year after year after year? It's because they were not Jesus. Jesus can do it because he's the perfect high priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. There remains no sacrifice for sins once he offers himself. So he's the perfect one offering the sacrifice, and he's the perfect sacrifice being offered. That's the, that's the way that we can understand it. And then look at Hebrews 9.24. He ascended to the perfect place. In verse 24, it says, Christ has entered into holy places, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, and now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Our there is not the whole world. Our there is believers. The book of Hebrews is written to Christians. When he says our behalf, he's talking about believers. So we see he's the perfect priest, he offers the perfect sacrifice. He ascended to the perfect place, which is heaven, which means he's the perfect mediator. Look at Hebrews 9, 15. And it reads, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So he's the perfect mediator. And remember what I said about atonement. Atonement requires a sacrifice, a mediator, and a covenant. You got all three, all three of those things in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why when he dies, he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. 
um, given for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's why we take communion. We take communion because we observe the fact that Christ died for us, and because he died for us, he inaugurates the new covenant, and we get those new covenant blessings in him. So, so, so this idea of priesthood, uh, sacrifice, and covenant, it, it, it culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. And we can look at this idea of new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13. And it says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent than theirs, that is more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. And notice, notice the covenant is with a particular people. It's not just with, with anybody. It's not just with a random group. With, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land to bring them out of Egypt. And verse 13 really sums up the point of, of what he's making. And speaking of a new covenant, he is making the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing and it uh, will growing old and is ready to vanish away. So because he's that perfect mediator, that perfect sacrifice, he inaugurates that new covenant, that Jeremiah 31 covenant, that, uh, th th that covenant in Ezekiel uh, 36, all of those promises find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And one scholar wrote, talking about this subject of high priest, he says, as the great high priest of the new covenant willingly and gladly offered himself as our substitute in deliberate obedience in his father's will. In doing so, his intent was not only to achieve redemption for a particular group of people, but also to secure everything necessary to bring those people to the end for which his death was designed, namely the full forgiveness of sins and all the blessings of the new covenant, including the gift of the Spirit who, who, who effectively applies his work to those whom the Son represents. So you see there, he became the perfect high priest. He became the, the perfect sacrifice. Therefore, he is the perfect uh, mediator. So you see, he fulfills that, that type in the Old Testament. So now we're ready to see what the intent of the atonement was. Now we're ready to answer that question. There are really eight, it, it's probably more than this, but there are really eight things that make it clear on what the intent of, of the atonement was. And again, I want to say it's way more than this in Scripture, but for the sake of time and for the sake of this lesson, I included eight. The first one is Christ came to save his people from their sins. So the intent of the atonement was that Christ saved his people from their sins. And we can look at that in Matthew 1, 21. talking about Mary, it says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Everybody is not Jesus's people. 
Jesus says those who are his people are the ones who are following him, those who believe, those who, th th those who obey him, those who follow him. Those are his people. It is clear here what the intent of the atonement was. The intent of the atonement is that God saves his people from their sins. And then we can look at Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Now, this is speaking of the electing love of God the Father in the book of Ephesians. And it says, even as he, talking about God the Father, chose us, believers, in him, talking about Jesus Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So one of the reasons why Christ died was so that the elect would, would, would be holy and blameless in Christ. That's one, of the, that, that's one of the intents of the atonement. In Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, we all know that passage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh-oh, there we go. Gave himself up for her that, me, that he might wash her and sanctify her with the washing of the water of the word to present her holy and blameless before God or to himself. So, so, so we see that it's clear what the intent of what Christ's work is is that he might present a pure bride. Everybody is not Christ's bride. Only those who believe in the church, called the church, are Christ's bride. And then what is the third intent or fourth intent? That Christ would deliver uh, God's elect from this present evil age, Galatians 1.4. You don't have to turn there, but that's in Galatians 1.4. And also that Christ might deliver his people from death. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, and that Christ might perfect forever God's elect. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, and that Christ might secure redemption for all of God's elect. You see that in John chapter 6, verse 37, and we can actually look at John chapter 6. There's a couple of verses in John chapter 6 that make the intent of Christ's death clear. We're going to look at John chapter 6, verses 37 and 39, and John chapter 10, verses 11 and 15. So in John chapter 6, uh, verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And in verse 39, he says, And this is the will of him who sent me, God the Father sent God the Son, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So not only will he not lose his elect, every single one of the elect will be raised and glorified on the last day. It's guaranteed. And I say that because if that's true, then it has to also be true that his death will accomplish that. And if his death will accomplish that, then it's also true that he died for a certain amount of people because not everybody is going to get this benefit. And if that doesn't make it clear, let's turn to John chapter 10, verse 11 and 15. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Is everybody a sheep? Mm, everybody's not a sheep. 
Sheeps are those who follow Jesus Christ, those who are led by Jesus Christ. He, he laid his life down for sheep. And look at verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. So we see it twice. Jesus is not confused as to what his mission is, nor is he confused about the people whom, whom will be his that he's dying for on the cross. And John Frame, he really summarizes the intent of the atonement very well. He writes, quote, in, in Scripture, the atonement does not merely make salvation possible. The atonement actually saves. It is not merely a prelude to our free decision. It brings to us all the benefits of God's forgiveness and eternal life. So the atonement will produce what it is designed to produce. Every single person who's supposed to get those new covenant blessings, they will get them. Heaven will have every single person that's supposed to be in heaven there. There will be nobody in heaven that, oh, God missed them. No, 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 no. Christ will get the full reward for which he died. Remember that. Not one drop of his blood will be shed in vain. That's ultimately the essence of these promises. And then we can also say that he died to manifest his love to God's elect. In 1 John 4, verses 7 and 12. First John 4, verses 7 to 12. So the context of this passage is talking about God's love and expressing God's love. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, verse 9 is really the key to the point that I'm making. In this love was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Who is the we in that passage? It's clearly believers because the New Testament letters are written to believers. There's no New Testament letter written to unbelievers. You won't find it in there. All the New Testament letters are written to people who believe, people who follow Jesus, people who have repented of their sins. And sometimes Christians who aren't doing the right thing, they need to be corrected. We see that in 1 Corinthians. But, but, but for the most part, the new, well, for all the parts, the New Testament is written to believers. So when we see we, us, our, he died for that we might have eternal life. He's talking about his elect. He's not talking about some random group of people. He's talking about his sheep because they're going to get the benefits of that. Now we're ready to um, answer the question, what is the extent of the atonement? For whom did Christ die? We're ready to address this question. We have demonstrated um, the intent of the atonement was for God to effectually save his people. We're ready to, to now identify who are the people that he intends to save. And because God's intent for the atonement is to be effectual, then it follows that the atonement is only intended for the elect, because the elect are the only people that receive the benefits. If you want to know who Christ died for, who has repented of their sins and is following the Lord, there you will find the people whom he died for. But why do I say that? Why do I say that um, Christ only died for a certain group of people? Other than the benefits, how can you tell me, oh, Jesus only died for certain people? Well, I'll give you four reasons. 
And the first reason is the unity of the Godhead. And I would say, I could have just taught this and went home because for me, this seals the, the, the doctrine of particular redemption, the unity of the Godhead. Because in the unity of the Godhead, you have both being and purpose. The Godhead is not divided on any level. The Godhead is completely unified. If, if, we, if we're orthodox, we're going to believe that God is perfectly unified and united in himself. He's not going to do something that goes against his nature. So when we talk about this idea of the unity of the Godhead, I really want to look at the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And I would say, if you really, if, if you really want, to, want to say why does somebody believe in particular redemption or why would you believe that, I would say in all humility, the unity of the Godhead is the core, is the, is the center of it. This is the center of the doctrine of particular redemption. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And what I like about this passage is Paul is worshiping God. He's celebrating God here. This is a doxology. And you would think in a doxology, you might want to keep it a little light. You might just want to just say a couple of things. God is love. God has blessed me. Paul has thrown election in here. He has thrown soteriology in here. He has thrown theology proper in here. And he's celebrating God because of all of those different things. All of those different aspects of theology, they come together in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Look at how he starts off. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's the work of God the Father. God the Father does the work of election. God the Son does the work of redemption. God the Holy Spirit does the work of applying that redemption to, to, to God's elect. So we see the work of the Father there in election. And then we see the work of the Son. He predestined us for himself, uh, adoption to himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, the to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in the beloved. The beloved is the Son. In him we have redemption. How do we get it? Through his blood. What else do we get? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of, the will, of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. So in him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. And verse 13 tells us about the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit applies that redemption that the Father ordained and the Son accomplished. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believe in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Notice he guarantees it until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all working as one to accomplish the same ends. You see it in that passage. 
God the Father elected the redeemed before the foundation of the world. God the Son, he died to secure redemption for God's elect people. God the Holy Spirit, he applies the benefits of that redemption. So now from this, I'll show you why the unity of the Godhead is why we should believe in particular redemption. Well, let's just take out the middle part of Ephesians. We're going we're to ignore the part about the death of Christ. And, and, and we're going to start really just with, with the work of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to ask a question. Does the Holy Spirit regenerate everybody? No, right? He doesn't regenerate everybody. Does the Father elect everybody? No, because that would cancel out the idea of election. Election means to, choo to choose. He doesn't elect everybody, right? So you have the, the Father electing some. Well, you have the Father electing some, and you have the Holy Spirit electing, well, regenerating some, but then you have God the Son dying for everybody. That's two groups of people. They don't even agree on who, who's going to be saved. There's this unity in the Godhead because what you have is you have Jesus trying to save everybody, but you have God the Father and God the Spirit saying, no, 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 no. I'm only saving the elect. That would be disunity in the Godhead. But we know that the Godhead, there, there's no disunity in the Godhead. The Godhead is perfectly united. They agree on who's going to be saved, and they all work in accordance to that same purpose. And we see that by, um, eloquently put by Paul in the book of Ephesians. And then the second reason is the fact that Jesus only prayed for the elect. We learned that this morning. Jesus didn't pray for the world. He prayed for those whom the Father gave him out of the world in John 17 and 9. And Jesus explicitly tells us that he is not uh, praying for the world. One commentator wrote, his intercession is limited, meaning that he's only doing the work of intercession for particular people. He prays for his own and not the world. It follows that his atoning death was intended for those whom the Father had given him, not for all in an indiscriminate fashion. If we see the intercession as particular and the cross as universal, we are putting a disruption in the heart of Christ's priestly work. So without particular redemption, we're not saying that people don't who, who don't believe in particular redemption are heretics or anything. We're not saying that. But what we're saying is it is inconsistent uh, not to believe in particular redemption if we believe in the unity of the Godhead. The same thing is true if we believe in Christ's uh, priesthood. Because if we don't believe in particular redemption and that Christ is only interceding for his elect, we're creating disunity even in his priesthood. And then we look at the fact that he prayed for the elect that they would be protected in the world. John 17, 11 to 16. He prayed that they would be sanctified. John 17, verses 17 to 19. He prayed that for future believers. John 17, verses 20 to 23. And he prayed that all believers would be perfected. John 17, verses 24 to 26. So we see what the focus of Jesus is. He's interceding for his people. But if we say that he's just interested in every person without distinction, that, that creates disunity in what he said that his mission was as an intercessor. And then the third reason is his present ministry of intercession as high priest in heaven is only for the elect. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 34. 
verse 33, it says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Jesus is the one who died. More than that, that was raised, who was seated at the right hand of God, who, is, who indeed is interceding for who? For us, us as believers, us as the saints at Rome that, that, that Paul is writing to. He's interceding for that particular group of believers, and more broadly, all believers. And then we see in 1 John, we don't have to turn there, but 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is only advocating for God's elect. It says that if, um, God's will is that we not sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ. That's calling believers to, to, to go to Jesus Christ as their advocate. And another commentator writes, all general atonement views must divide Christ's unified priestly work, redefine his relation as priest to his people, and ultimately make ineffective his work as the head of the covenant. And at all points, Scripture does not allow. So there's commentators saying, Scripture doesn't allow that. Scripture doesn't allow for us to just say that Jesus is just dying for some random group of people. He, he, he's, his, his work is focused on his elect. And then we look at the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit only intercedes for the elect. And this is even made even more clear by the fact that God the Son asked God the Father to send the Spirit as an advocate for believers. John 14, 6, now I ask my Father, and he will send you another comforter, another advocate, and he will be with you. He's not with unbelievers. He's with believers. So these points all illustrate that biblical doctrine is like a puzzle. All biblical doctrines are designed to fit together. If it's biblical, it should not contradict something else that we say is biblical. If it's biblical that God is one God, three person, and exists in perfect unity, then it cannot be that they, the, the members of the Godhead disagree on salvation. Because without... Um, particular redemption, it would seem as if the members of the Godhead do not agree about salvation, as we've demonstrated. So we must understand that our biblical doctrines must agree with one another. They must fit with one another. Because good theology is always going to be like, kind of like um, dominoes. If you get one thing wrong, the rest, the, the, the rest is going to fall. It's interconnected. And what the doctrine of particular redemption does, it, sh- it, it, it really teaches the interconnectedness of other biblical doctrines. So our doctrine is, is really like a puzzle. And if our understanding of the atonement is constructed in relation to the biblical doctrine of God, logically we would end up embracing the doctrine of particular re- redemption because God is unified in being and in purpose, particularly in his saving purposes. Now what about the passages that say all? What about the ones that, that, that seem to say Christ died for all people. What do we do with those? Well, John Frame was helpful here. He says there are passages that say that Christ died for all, but the extent of the word all is notoriously flexible. So in other words, all doesn't always mean all without any type of context or exception. For example, in Mark 1.5, it says that all Judea and Jerusalem went out to hear John the Baptist. But clearly, we should not take that to mean every single person that was in that area went to go hear John the Baptist. That's not what Mark means. Mark is just saying a big group of people went to go see John the Baptist. We're not to take that to mean every single person in that area. Or a more specific example, in some of the all texts, it's clearly talking about all Christians, 
or all the elect. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, for as in Adam all die, also in Christ all should be made alive. If we take that to mean universal atonement, we would have to end up being universalists because we would be basically saying that all people are going to be raised to glory. All, all people are going to receive the gift of eternal life that, that was only promised to the elect. But 1 Corinthians 15, 22 is talking about believers. It's talking about he's going to make alive all who are in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 15, it says that Jesus died for all, therefore all died. Everybody doesn't die to themselves. Everybody doesn't have a transformed heart. So all can't be talking about just any, a random group of people. It's talking about believers. And then 1 John 2, 2, right when he says you have an advocate with the Father, it says that he's, he, he, is, he is the propitiation for the sins of the world. Some people might take that and say, see, it says he's the propitiation for the sins of the world in 1 John 2, 2. But the point there is not that Jesus is intending to save every single person without exception. What the point is, is that if you want to be saved, no matter where you are in the world, you're going to have to come to Jesus. Because not only is he the propitiation for the sins of believers in Raleigh, he's the propitiation for the sin of believers in China, Jerusalem. No matter where you are in the world, there's only one propitiation. The scope of, of, of what he does is broad, but the people that it affects is narrow. That's what's being communicated there in 1 John 2.2. So we must understand that when we deal with the all passages, the context determines what it means. What about evangelism and missions? I'll just keep this brief. If Jesus promised that all that the Father gives him will come, he meant that. Every single person will come. But as we learn with the doctrine of, of the effectual call, God doesn't just ordain the ends, he also ordained the means. He's going to effectually call people. Christ is going to get the full reward for by which he died, but he does that through the preaching of the gospel. So the fact that God has guaranteed that he will not lose any and all of his elect will come should actually drive and motivate missions, not hinder missions or make it pointless to do missions because we still have to go out and preach. It just means our preaching is not in vain. That's what the doctrine of particular redemption teaches us. And then application. How does this doctrine apply to our lives? Well, it, well, it, well, it reminds us that we do not belong to ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says we, we were bought with a price. We should glorify God. We can put to death the sins in our lives for us who believe. Romans 6, verses 6 to 14 says one of the benefits of Christ's atonement is that we're set free from the, power, the penalty and the power of sin so that we can live for God. And then as Grant so greatly put this morning, we can love other believers. Christ died that, that, that we might be enabled to do those things. We're regenerated because the Spirit. We're effectually called because God chose us. And Scripture shows us that the atonement was specific. It, 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 it is wide in its scope. It is narrow in who it benefits. He didn't die for every single person in the world. He died for a specific group of people all around the world. That is the difference uh, than saying that he just died for everybody. So there's a particular scope. And in conclusion, I want to read you this quote from Kurt Daniel. He says that it is sad that the atonement debate has sometimes become rancorous. Participants on all sides resemble soldiers who argue over Christ's robe while ignoring the sacred sacrifice of the suffering Savior. So whether we say that we are Calvinists, Arminians, 
four-point Calvinists, we can still love each other because we all are not going to agree on everything. But the point here is that there can still be love and unity because regardless of whether you don't like limited atonement or not, Christ still died for you. You are still a Christian. You are still in the family of God. And in closing, I want to read this last quote from Robert Murray McShane. He says, adore Jesus, that he passed by millions and died for you. Think about that. Whether you agree with limited atonement or not, you still believe, you're still a Christian. And when you sing those hymns, you don't sing them in general. You say, Christ died for me. When you say, what can wash away my sins, you don't mean the sins of everybody. You mean my sins. When you came to the realization that you needed Christ, that was a personal, specific realization. So whether we say that we're um, leaning this way or that way, we have to admit that at some point we're going to have to say Christ died for me. Christ died for me specifically. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you um, that you have not just left us here to wander aimlessly. You have not left us in the dark, but you have caused the light to shine in our hearts, giving to us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we meditate on these truths about particular redemption, that we would be humble, that we would be loving, and that it would just draw us to worship you um, all the more. And also just pray, Lord, that um, as we leave or prepare to leave, that these doctrines would drive us to seek to glorify you even more and seek to share the gospel and to be on mission for you, Lord. And as always, we thank you, we love you, and we honor you. We pray these things humbly in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.